Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It is a truth universally acknowledged that two men in possession of a podcast must be in want of a weekly subject. And especially, Dominic, to paraphrase Dickens, when it's the worst of times, it's the worst of times. It's the age of foolishness. It's the age of foolishness. Only Tom Holland there could possibly believe that he could improve on Charles <laughs> Dickens. So let's get on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Today we want to talk about historical fiction. And the reason we want to talk about historical fiction is that a few weeks ago, Tom and I had a, uh, I think what the critics would call a minor spat about the merits of the great Patrick O'Brien. Uh, and Tom's final comment, if I can just read it out to damn him for all eternity, is everyone tells me they're great, he wrote on Twitter. But honestly, after 30 pages of rope, I had lost the will to live. And this caused well-justified uproar. So we decided it needed the full podcast treatment. Emma Darwin said, You too, Tom. Having grown up on C.S. Forrester, I sure I'd love Aubrey Maturin as much as so many mainly male friends told me I would. But the gorgeous period detail never adds up to anything. Just sits there. You're quite wrong, Emma, I have to say. No, very, very wise. Emma, you are right. Well, Chris Kendall said, This is like giving up on Proust after three pages because it's just about cake. Um, Chris Kendall is obviously a very fine judge. Um, anyway, Tom... Patrick O'Brien, you're not a fan. It's too much rope for you. You're going to give it another go? I don't think so. There's so much I want to read. And they just kind of, the thought of ploughing the way through all that stuff about yardarms and foxholes and weevils and stuff. I'm just, I'm simply not interested. And I wasn't ever particularly interested in a hornblower either. I think novels I've never read about, novels about the admirals and midshipmen and things <laughs> in Nelson's, but I'm just not interested. Yeah, I'd much rather sure. read, you know, the actual campaigns of Nelson. All right, fair enough. Well, let's get into historical fiction. So do you read historical fiction for pleasure? That's obviously the first question. Are you a historical fiction buff? Well, uh, like most men, I basically stopped reading fiction when I was 40. Oh, for goodness um, sake. <laughs> so I, I used to read, I mean, I, I read historical fiction obsessively when I was a child. Uh, I'm yeah. sure like lots of people who become interested in history, it's a kind of gateway drug to it. Yeah. I've read a lot of historical fiction over the course of my life, but uh, yeah, basically, I mean, about for about ten years, I haven't really read it. Um, but but I'm aware that that's because I actually I've become more and more interested in reading history and less and less interested in reading fiction. And that's weird. That corresponds that's... to the fact we used to be seeing. I began my writing career as a novelist, and you did. They were and all the novels were set in historical periods, and I just began to realise that the history was just much more interesting than the bits that I was making up. So that's why essentially why I changed course. You're selling the listener short a little here. 
you weren't just a hist- a novelist. You're a novelist of historically themed vampire fiction. Is that, <laughs> I was. Is that, yes, I was. <laughs> yes, I was. But I was Let's get always into very inter- gritty. Yeah, I was. I was very interested in in people's attitudes to the supernatural, for instance, and I enjoyed <laughs> writing set in historical periods because it was a way of accessing that. Um, and I, for me, actually. One of the things that I find fascinating about the past is is all the kind of weird stuff that people believed yeah. in the past. And I'm sure that in 200 years' time, people will look back at, our, you know, 2021 and go, wow, they believed that? I mean, actually, we were talking about that last week on conspiracy theories. People say they believed QAnon. Blimey. Yeah. So in a yeah, way, I, right. think, I think fact is more interesting than fiction, is basically what I've come to believe. But it's interesting what you say about it being a gateway drug, because I was thinking about this um, today, sort of looking forward to the podcast, but when I first, the first history books I read, like most people listening to this, were the Ladybird history books. And they were sort of packaged and presented in exactly the same way as the Ladybird books about myths and legends. Or for me, the, the Ladybird books that I love were Robin Hood and King Arthur. And then I went from them to Kings and Queens of England, Nelson, Elizabeth I, and all these other stories without really seeing a, 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 a sort of disjuncture. It seems like part of the same thing. And obviously, kids' history books are often written, if they're any good, they're written in a sort of slight, lightly fictionalised style, aren't they? I mean, how many people come to Roman Britain through Rosemary Sutcliffe, the Eagle of the Ninth, or, you know, come to any of the great stories of history through fiction rather than from fact? You know, for me, I mean, for me, what got me particularly interested in the Romans was Asterix, which I suppose, in a way, are a kind of novels. I mean, Bon Dessiné. Um, yeah. And then you're right that Rosemary Sutcliffe, who do people still read her? I mean, for the benefit I, of, of. Yeah, they do. They're still. Yeah. My son reads them. I, I mean, they, they have. They, the Folio yeah, Society. That's your amazing, son. <laughs> yeah, he's well, is We're a very normal full, family. Full of we're 1950s very... historical <laughs> fiction. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I. Th- I, I thought all her books were wonderful. There was a, a fantastic one about um, the Roman invasion in uh, AD 43 that I think was all about a war dog. So it was. A, a right. kind of Jack London only Celtic, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the Eagle of the Ninth is the absolute classic, and that clearly does have an enduring influence. There was a whole rash of films that came out a couple of years ago about people going north of Hadrian's Wall, um, yeah. looking for kind of lost eagles and things like that. So that that clearly does have an enduring influence. And the other one you talked about, King Arthur, um, is uh, the Sword at Sunset. That's which is that's a, for adults, a, though, isn't it? That's brilliant. Yeah. But that is a fabulous novel about a kind of historical Arthur who yeah. in the 5th century after the Romans have left. And there's a kind of climactic scene after they've won the Battle of Baden against the uh, the, the, the invading Saxons. And um, Arthur says that they are still upholding the values of Rome and they, they dream that the emperor in distant Constantinople will know it. And in a sense, it's... Rosemary Sutcliffe in in all those novels is casting Rome as the kind of embodiment of civilization, uh, and therefore in those novels you have a clear sense that Rome is good and that barbarism is bad. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a kind of um, polarity that I think children particularly respond to. But of course, part of the fascination of history is that you start to realise that those slightly stark polar- polarities aren't actually true. And of course, yes. Arthur isn't true. Yeah, but that's but that I think that's part of. I mean, that's part of children's history, whether it's fact or fiction, right? That you're yeah, setting up course. these myths yeah. that you later debunk. I mean, actually, talking yeah. of that and in sort of stories that you debunk, I used to read. I mean, tons of kind of G. A. Henty style imperial. Oh, did fiction. you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this will astonish people. Khartoum and all that. Yeah, precisely, kind of thing. yeah. This will astonish people who are used to no, my incredibly, so incredibly left-wing views on um, British <laughs> imperialism. Uh, <laughs> um, but all that stuff, those sort of rousing stories, they do more, I think, to get people interested in history than any number of. I mean, let's be honest; they do more than any number of academic history books, don't they? But again, you've got the same thing because in those books, the guiding assumption is that the British Empire is positive that. Um, adventures yeah. into darkest Africa or whatever. I mean, it's kind of still there in Indiana Jones and the, and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, absolutely. That gives you a kind of, again, a, a kind of clear sense of goodies and baddies that obviously now would not be acceptable. You wouldn't get novels written like that. Um, and I guess that, that, that what's interesting about that is that it suggests that historical novels themselves become historical artefacts, that they become oh, of course they do. very, very, very rapidly. Do. Yeah, of course um, they do. 
I mean, you look at, um, but actually the good is and baddest thing is, is, is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you think about the most successful histo- or the most sort of prestigious historical novels of the last 10 years, Hilary Mantel's books. They have goodies and baddies in. Thomas Cromwell is the goodie. Thomas yeah. Moore is the baddie. And that is a complete reversal of the Robert Bolt, A Man for All yeah. Seasons, where it was the other way around. And I think what's interesting about Wolf Hall and, and that trilogy is, is Hilary Mantel's attempt to overcome what is perhaps another issue with historical fiction, which is that you know what's going to happen. Mm. Whereas you have to... The, the skill of the novelist is to persuade you that, that the characters within that historical sweep do not know what's going to happen. And so Hilary Mantel does it very cleverly by putting it all in the, the present tense. So you have a sense of events happening um, as she, she writes about it. And I guess the converse of that, the, the other attempt, and it wouldn't traditionally be thought of as a historical novel or a series of historical novels, would be the Game of Thrones novels, which are objectively okay. completely fantasy, but yeah. obviously take elements of um, recognisable history. So the core of it is the Wars of the Roses, and if, if you read a series of novels set in the Wars of the Roses, you know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you just have to look yeah. at a kind of a history book to know, you know, who's going to die, who, who's going to win the battles and so on. Part of the, the, the thrill of Game of the Thrones is that, you, you know, you get the same you archetypes, you get the same patterns, but you don't know who's going, to, who's going to die. And I think that that's a kind of interesting way of spicing it up. That's interesting because the Game of Thrones novels are partly inspired by a French series. Have you ever read these books by Maurice Drouin, Accursed Kings? Set in the Hundred Years' War, aren't they? Yeah, set in the Hundred Years' War. And they're a a strange thing to read because, as an English reader, you don't really know what's going to happen. You don't know all the characters because they're all these sort of French noblemen, the sort of Warwick the Kingmakers and Simon de Montforts of French medieval history, who are presumably well-known or were well-known to sort of 1950s French readers but are basically completely unknown to any but specialist English readers. So there you're reading historical fiction. That's quite fun. I mean, they're, they're not great works of literature, but they're quite engaging. But you you get, you get have this strange experience as a reader yeah. that you don't know what everybody else knows who's reading it. Well, I, I remember um, from the English point of view, Arthur Conan Doyle's um, The White Company and Sir Nigel, which is set in the Hundred Years' War, but from Sir the Nigel, English that's, side. That's not a name you um, choose now, is it? Yeah. <laughs> And when I read it, I, it, it features Sir John Shandos, and who, who's a real you know, central figure in the Hundred Years' War, um, and is cast as the absolute model of chivalry. Um, and it features the Black Prince and the Battle of Poitiers and all kinds of, of kind of truthful elements. But it's very much, um, I suppose, an, an Edwardian take on it. Um, and chivalry is something true and authentic, and you don't really get the, the peasant's perspective. But actually what I found m- the most brilliant section of the Game of Thrones novels was the, the, the sequence in, I think it's the second and third ones, where basically you have the Hundred Years' War going on. And this tends not to be featured in the, the TV series, but in the novels you get a brilliant sense of what it must have been like to be a peasant basically yes. in the Hundred Years' War. It's kind of, yeah. you know, companies of, of gangs of, of armed thugs roaming around, that the, the lords in their castles are essentially predators. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying vision. And I think vastly truer to the Hundred Years' War, even though it's set in Westeros, than, than anything, any, any kind of historical version of the Hundred Years' War that I've read. Any, and I think that that's a kind of really interesting slant on what can be done with historical fiction that actually doesn't have to be entirely accurate and in many ways if it's not accurate perhaps you get a better sense of of what the reality was like yeah i completely agree with you about that it's the second book of game of thrones so the war's just started and they're sort of going around raping and pillaging so this is the stuff that you don't expect in a sort of historical fantasy novel it's the sort of second world war style gritty realism um we'll get onto that question of accuracy in a second but before we do that um tell me do you, are there some historical books that sort of historical novels that really stand out to you as having meant more than others or having caught a period better than others? Well, there's one we mentioned already, which is um, Ian Pierce's Instance of the Finger Post, which uh, if I had to nominate the single best historical novel that I've read, I, that would be that would get my vote. And the reason for that is that it offers multiple perspectives. So it's four different perspectives on, um, I think it's set at the end of the Protectorate, the, the, the beginnings of the Restoration, uh, and it's a kind of a, a mystery. And you get the perspective of, you know, a scholar at Oxford and a, a, a cavalier and so on. Um, and I think that the idea that um, there isn't an, an objective 
kind of sense of what historical fact is, is brilliantly evoked through that. But also it's brilliant because without giving anything away, there's a twist that is true to the to how people in the 17th century would have understood the world, but isn't necessarily true to how we would see it. And I think that, um, I think that historical fiction that I tend not to like is, is condescending. It's historical fiction that is condescending towards the, the culture of the age. So although I, I like C.J. Sansom, for instance, very much, uh, I find that as novels very gripping, as he'd done, it's very, very gripping. Um, or indeed, uh, Bernard Cornwall's Lost Kingdom, set in the mm. Anglo-Saxon period. I get, again, the kind of very thrilling and exciting. What I, I dislike about them is that both character, both lead characters, are kind yeah. of cast as liberal humanist skeptics who, yeah, um, Philip Pullman and Richard Dawkins, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yeah, basically. Characters. And so you you have this guy who's been you know who's been in a monastery and is now um, kind of saying I. You know, I don't hold with Catholicism or Protestantism. It's all nonsense. Let people believe yeah. what they think. But I'm just going to carry on reading the God delusion. And it's, <laughs> essentially, it's it's the perspective of a 21st century liberal skeptic. Yeah. Um, and maybe you need. I mean, maybe maybe people need that to provide a kind of sense of continuity. But I don't think so. I think it's kind of more interesting to. Um, to try and get people to to see the world in so far as possible through eyes that are not those of the well, that's the point of that's fiction, the point right? of kind of I mean, reading it yeah exactly I but mean, that's true of the bernard cornwell right i like the bernard cornwell books as sort of holiday reads or whatever but it, it does always amuse me that utrid the lead character is this 21st century guy trapped in a sort yes. of half saxon i mean he kills Viking. people and he's got yeah. very good with an axe but but he often says oh i don't like i don't like christianity you know i i they're very <laughs> they're all hypocrites all this kind of stuff which is completely <laughs> implausible yes Yes. Uh, uh, do, do you have a favourite? Um, well, we mentioned before The Leopard um, by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa. And I, I think that is a, a brilliant book. It's a one-off. So it was published in the mid-20th century. It's looking back at the period of Italian unification. It's a very conservative book. It's a book about the sort of anxiety of change. So it's this guy, who, the, 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 the prince who is sort of besieged by the rise of the Italian middle classes and by the, by the sort of um, the new values of nationalism and what he sees as vulgarity and, and all this kind of thing. But it's beautifully written. It's a sort of one, great one-off. Um, and it has this famous stuff about for everything to stay the same, everything has to change, which has become a sort of, um, become one of the great sort of mottos of intellectual conservatism, or liberal conservatism, I guess. The other book that I'm, I don't think anybody mentioned on Twitter that surprises me, um, it's probably the most famous historical novel, is War and Peace. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there you've got a book that's not just a historical novel, but it's also about history. History. And how yeah. history works. And I, I'm very sympathetic to Tolstoy's non-great man um, school of history, that history is sort of made by the masses who don't really know what they're doing and that great men are sort of then imposed on history almost and become merely the vehicles for for great forces have you are you so, a war and peace man yes i i well i'm more a dostoevsky man to be honest oh, um, no, I can't, the can't deal with that. the troubled relationship with uh, yeah. god and suffering is much more my, you're just my so dark back. tom but, you're so you're so <laughs> deep well, this time last year, I was actually in St. Petersburg. I'd been commissioned by The Economist to write an article about crime and punishment. So I was going around uh, St. Petersburg in the footsteps of the murderous Raskolnikov. But uh, yeah, cool I, of course, I mean, Tolstoy's great. Um, but but what I, my chief memory of reading War and Peace is that, you know, it's brilliant. You get through, you've got the bottle of Barodino and all that kind of stuff. And then right at the end, you've got this 50 page essay on, on why Napoleon isn't very important. That's right, yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> And that is a bit like kind of climbing a mountain and you see what you think's the peak and you get there and then there's another bloody great peak waiting for you to crawl up. And that I do remember being being quite a slog. Um, one, one, one other thing I think quite strongly about historical fiction is that it's very much easier to write it um, if it's set in a period in which novels actually exist so yeah so if you so basically if you let's say that, that, that fiction begins well i suppose it begins with with don quixote and cervantes but let's say in the 18th century because that's when you start to get mass yeah, novels. The novels yeah so if you want to set a novel in the 18th century you can read richardson or or um smollett or whatever 
Yeah. If you want to write something set in the in the in in the Regency, you can read Jane Austen. If you want to write something in the Victorian period, you can read Zola or Dickens or whatever, and so on. But it becomes much much harder if you go beyond that period. So into the Middle Ages or classical period or um, ancient Egypt. It just in ancient Egypt, it's just really difficult, you know, for a man to get out of bed and walk through a door because <laughs> <laughs> you, we we can't we don't, we don't know how an Egyptian would describe that. Yeah. So Agatha Christie so, has an ancient so Egyptian. Of, Have you ever read Agatha Christie's ancient Egyptian murder mystery? I so, but, uh, to, to me, it's the least. I think it's called. Is it Appointment with Death? I can't remember the title. And anyway, it's not very good because she's so clearly out of her comfort zone, <laughs> yes. and you just don't believe any of these people exist. Yes. It's completely mad. Ah, <laughs> oh, the little grey cells that said no. As you say, I mean, because because you <laughs> you sort of think this. With, I even think this with. Um, I mean. I don't think this all the time, but I even think this was, say, Bernard Cornwell's books, which are narrated by Uhtred. He's telling you the story. But you do sort of think to yourself, not only why is he thinking like a 21st century kind of liberal, but also why is he using this essentially 18th, 19th century literary form to order his thoughts and the way he... Well, well, and, and I think the answer for that is that the historical novel is basically invented by Walter Scott. That's true, in, yeah. In, 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 yeah. You know, in, in the early 19th century... And so, in a sense, the default mode for historical novel is kind of early 19th century. Um, And even though people don't read Scott anymore, the kind of the influence of it lingers on whenever whenever people kind of write. I mean, it's kind of constant temptation. And and so you mentioned Agatha Christie writing about ancient Egypt. I think one way for, for people to get around the problem of, say, you know, how do you how do you write a a novel set in ancient Rome or whatever. Is, is precisely to focus in on anachronism. So thinking of Lindsay Davis, who's written a series of, of mm. Falco novels, a series of, uh, who's a detective in ancient Rome, the anachronism kind of is the point. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of tremendous detail. It's all very accurate, lots of characters. You know, Rome is brilliantly evoked, all that kind of thing. But you don't have the issue of trying to find a kind of style that is appropriate to yeah. the Roman period because you can, um, you know, you revel in the anachronism. Whereas something like um, Margaret Usenor's, uh Memoirs of Hadrian or indeed Very boring. Graves' Very boring um, I, Claudius. Yeah, well, it is, it, it's, it is, I agree, it is boring because it's, it's an attempt to, to mimic Hadrian's voice, but it's so accurate that by the standards of a modern novel, you know, it, it's quite dull. Yeah, so um, Count Belisarius, Robert Graves' Count Belisarius, which I find yeah. incredibly boring because it just yeah. reads like a sort of Byzantine account of a campaign. Whereas um, I Claudius works because the source material is so brilliant. I mean, he's basically adapting Suetonius and, and Tacitus and, and that yeah. is such fun. And there's such scope for kind of murder and depravity that, um, you know, he can... Claudius can kind of write as Claudius might have done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's very much graves as well but 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 i think i claudius is the most successful attempt to ventriloquize um somebody from a period before the invention of the novel that i can think of the most kind of enduring one um before we go to the break which we probably should i want to just bring up one of the tweets because talking about ventriloquizing a period i think the best example of this uh, it's come. A, we had a message from somebody called Potchcott, and he says, "Do you have any time for George Macdonald Fraser's Flashman books?" Now, I think the narrative voice in Flashman is as good as any narrative voice in any historical novel. It absolutely captures for me how a Victorian cad would <laughs> tell the story of all these campaigns. And I think the Flashman books are the cleverest, actually. I mean, maybe Tolstoy or whatever apart. Because they're playing so much with your expectations of Victorian imperial fiction, and the the ambiguity of the way it treats the the story of Britain's empire is so cleverly done. Because you can take of that story whatever you like, I think. But it is also, I think, the novels are very much products of a time where the attitude to the empire is less complicated than it is now. I mean, it kind of. I, Do you think? I so? wonder if it would. Yes, I do. I think I, I the language in it is not the kind of language I think that that even if one was trying to ventriloquise, yeah, a, a Victorian would necessarily use. be used. You now. see, here, here, Tom, I would disagree with you. I would say the the the, the fashion books are actually re- reflective of a time where attitudes to empire are more complicated than they are now. Because yes, okay, that's uh, possible. Yeah, Fraser, yeah. Fraser 
thing. Flashman describes all these sort of British victories and all the rest of it. And and there's no doubt that he is patriotic and that and that 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 both Flashman and his author are patriotic and 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 all the rest of it. But at the same time, the stories always show the exploitation, the greed. Uh, Flashman himself is a terrible coward, and he's a, a rapist, and a, he sort of exploits people and all the rest of it. And and the hypocrisy of empire is laid bare at the same time that it's celebrated. So it has its cake and eat it. I agree, I agree. But 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 yes, he does have his cake and eat it. So he's a, he's a rapist and a racist. But would a rapist and a racist now be as acceptable to the reading public as it was in the 70s or whenever it was? That it no, was because, we're more I'm, frightened I'm of the ambi- because we're more frightened of the ambiguity, I think. Because we want yeah. the, well, the story to be, to be black or white, don't we? We want it to be good or evil. We don't like a readers now would perhaps find it more troubling to use yeah, the I think, current words. I, but so. I think I think that people's people's sense of, of what is acceptable with ambiguities has changed yeah. and evolved. And so again in that sense I think Flashman is is becoming a kind of historical artifact. I mean I think you know it'd be very, very interesting for historians who want to study changing attitudes to, to empire over the past fifty years. I think it you know key That's a fair point. key piece of yeah. evidence. And also, Tom, you know what? You couldn't teach the Flashman books at a university now because of the language. So if you wanted to yeah. use them in a course, I mean, they'd have to be preceded by all kinds of trigger warnings about all the material and the way that the Flashman and the narrator describes them. Anyway, uh, I couldn't recommend them highly enough. And uh, on that note, let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, if we haven't been cancelled, we'll look at some of the tweets. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. The pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. Nicholas Nickleby. The producer writes all these sort of fortune cookie style. Um, <laughs> it's not uh, you, so now you're dissing and, Dickens. Intros you're dismissing the greatest novelist in the English language as fortune cookie. Oh, Dominic. <laughs> now, Dickens, of course, is a historical novelist, Tom. Um, so you've stirred up things on Twitter by talking about um, the historical novel that you think has done most to fix the uh, the image of a particular period, haven't you? And you think that is? Uh, yeah, well, I, th- I think that that is um, A Tale of Two Cities. And in fact, because um, David Haskia actually puts this, he, he puts this down very nicely. One question, which works of historical fiction have influenced popular understanding of the period they portray the most? And have they done so for the better or the worse? So I think that um, Tale of Two Cities by Dickens is probably the single most influential novel on the way that people in the English-speaking world understand a period of history. Because although Dickens is obviously, you know, he's drawing on Burke, who is the first person to kind of really clarify the idea of the French Revolution as terror, um, and then Carlyle, who is is doing the same. Dickens, um, you know, with his inimitable genius, portrays this image of the French Revolution as... um, 
being awash with blood as the guillotine, as tricketeurs, women knitting in front of the guillotine, um, uh, tumbrils, aristocrats having their heads chopped off. But, 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 also, the, the sense of, of just how depraved and evil the aristocracy are and how they have it coming. Um, yeah. And the kind of stark colours of the French Revolution, kind of as a morality tale, is really defined for us by Dickens. And I, I remember I was in um, Paris for, in 1989 for the bicentenary of the uh, celebration of the revolution. And Le Monde, I think, asked... The G7 meeting was going on in Paris. Oh, I know where you're going with this. This is Margaret Thatcher, and, um, yeah. yeah, Of course. And, and um, Le Monde asked um, all the leaders of the G7 nations for their take on the French Revolution. And six of them went on about, you know, uh, human rights and liberty and fraternity and equality and all this kind of thing. Um, and Mrs Thatcher said, well, it was terrible. It was all about the guillotine and tumbrils and yeah. things. And she obviously got that from... Um, from uh, uh, um, uh, Tale of Two Cities, which I think really does define the French Revolution up to this yeah, day it does. For, it does. for the English-speaking world. I remember when I was a child in sort of 1970s, 1980s Britain, seeing a, a, a kid's TV programme one afternoon, which was about the French Revolution. And I can still remember the scenes of sort of sweaty, horny-handed sons of toil bursting into a palace and all these sort of pretty ladies in waiting hiding in the cupboard while these sort of slavering dogs of the proletariat drag them out on their way to the guillotine. So this sort of stuff is very clearly deeply embedded in the kind of Anglo-American, you know, imagination and our, our sense of the French Revolution. So I, I buy that. I suppose what I'm surprised you don't mention I Claudius, or do you think it's because I Claudius is too obviously based on Suetonius and Tacitus? Yes, yes. I think. I mean, I. Obviously, it has its spin, but I think it's going with the grain of, of the way that Suetonius and Tacitus portray um, the Roman Empire. Yeah. And I, I think that also that was kind of compounded, obviously, by the, the TV series. Um, I, would, I would say that um, the, the key is, is novels that have radically altered, reconf- altered yeah. and, and, and transfigured it. So another one would be uh, Walter Scott's Ivanhoe which is um, set in the the medieval England. And I think that that's influential um, because that kind of really beds down the idea that medieval England is about Saxons and Normans and that these are completely different people and it's kind of like apartheid South Africa or something, which is still an idea that that is very strong in movies and and, and, and historical fiction to this day. And, of course, they weave in um, Robin Hood with Richard the Lionheart which, you know, you're still getting in Prince of Thieves and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I think that's influential. And one last one, which I think has its influence is now basically dissolved, is Gone with the Wind. I think that that, yeah. that had a really, really seismic influence on how people saw the antebellum South. Uh, that's and right. I think that, that, that now the under- that, that, that has basically dissolved and, and, and no one would regard that as um, an authentic vision. But I agree with you that Gone with the Wind is... very influential for a long time. I agree with you that Gone with the Wind is colossally important, though I think Gone with the Wind isn't going against, it wasn't going against the grain, it was going with the grain of yeah, a lot of, yeah. of yeah. Uh, sort of scholarship and the way that Americans remembered the Civil War and Reconstruction. And of course, Gone with the Wind is also building on the success of Birth of a Nation. So the yeah. film in the 1910s that was sort of the film of its day and established that. I, I mean, Birth of a Nation is an incredibly racist film, if you watch it now. I used to teach it, and it is, I mean... I'm not easily shocked, but it's pretty shock, sort of shocking kind of stuff. Um, and another novel, actually, t- talking about America and it's kind of mythology of America, might be The Virginian. Um, yeah. Which is the first kind of Wild West novel. Yes. Um, and, and kind of really establishes the template with shootouts and saloon yeah. bars and cattle ranching and everything that then b- gets picked up by the, by the Hollywood. And, and well, I was about to say, we're getting so yeah, so I think I think they're they're good. Um, but actually, on on the topic generally of um, how accurate uh, historical fiction, you know, should it be accurate? Does it matter? Um, we've got one from um, Killian Mabuba who says, uh, film director Stephen Frears once said about historical films: never let facts get in the way of a good story. Do you agree with this approach to historical fiction, or is there a responsibility for artists to deal in facts when dealing with real historical figures or events? Dominic, what do you think? So my take on that would be quite complicated. I think um, if you're writing, let's say you write, let's stick with novels. If you're writing a novel about a historical period, I think by and large your responsibility is to the novel. So you, you know, if I'm writing a novel about, 
Sassanian Persia or, you know, um, the, the, the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. I don't think my chief responsibility should be to the facts because it's clearly a novel. I think my responsibility is the artistic product of the of the book and to the readers. Where I think there's a possibly a distinction is where you're dealing with subjects that are very recent. So the relatives of people mm-hmm. who were in the book are are um, uh, are possible readers, um, mm-hmm. or it's you know some sort of incredibly traumatic. Um, moment. So, for example, if you were writing a book about the Holocaust, you would obviously mm-hmm. think that you, there's, a, there's an expectation and a responsibility of sort of fidelity to fact. But, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who gets hot under the collar about people have the wrong carriage in the Tudors or, um, you know, people are carrying the wrong kind of sword in the, the sort of Bernard Cornwell adaptations. I mean, I think that's completely irrelevant. I mean, they're clearly fiction, so it doesn't matter. But when you get to, let's say, The Crown, the most recent series, where the people in it are still alive, I mean, they're human beings with lives. They might be rich and well-known, but they're still human beings like the rest of us. Um, I, I think the, the, the authors should have a responsibility to fairness, I guess is the word. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think even with the most sensitive topics, it's possible to 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 engage in fantasy and to to make play with the facts. So I think of um, recent novel by Colson Whitehead, The Underground Railroad, which weaves the fantastical into the story of um, slavery in the, the the antebellum period in in the United States to brilliant effect. And I actually think that um, a kind of an obsession with realism actually. You know, it's going back to Scott, basically what you're doing then is you're writing an early 19th century novel. You're writing yeah. a novel in the tradition of Walter Scott. Part of, of the best way to write a historical novel is actually to accept that an obsession with, with, with getting the facts right is actually, you know, quite a recent idea. So that if you're writing about um, periods where people believe in um, ghosts or gods or whatever, I think, you know, I don't have any issue at all with them being woven in. I think that, yeah. that that can often kind of add to it. So, you know, we mentioned Game of Thrones, but I would say Lord of the Rings actually is, in a sense, a much more creative um, response to early medieval history than a kind of rigorous attempt to work out exactly what Attila might have said or what the Varangian yes. Guard did. Or what you, you know. I, I think that, um, in a sense, letting loose the kind of the, the, the moorings that tether you to... to, to to the known historical facts in certain periods of history can be incredibly liberating. And that's why you would want to read fiction, I think, rather than yeah. say straight history. Agreed. And I think there's also a danger, isn't there, before we move on, that um, that your research can can overwhelm you as a novelist. And I think that's a, an issue that some people have actually with Hilary Mantel, that she wears her research very heavily. And there's an enormous amount of stuff about the clothes that they have and the right kind of cloth and the, the food that they're eating and all that. And you can feel the weight of all this stuff that she's done um, and perhaps a bit of judicious cutting. I mean, not that I she's won two well, prizes, so it's not like I. Need to <laughs> yes, I'm sure she'd be grateful for your advice. Yeah, way. thanks for it. Well, she might have won three. <laughs> but I, I, I agree that, that that with kind of bad historical novelists, um, that you know, the, the the dread is the kind of clunking speech for you mean the Duke of York his, and his three children <laughs> yeah. are coming, or they talk in that sort of simple to Scott way. Verily, I'd say to thee, you know, all this kind of yes. stuff. Um, yes. Anyway, right. Do we have um, another question? Do we have another question? Uh, so Tim Vasby Burney says, "What are our earliest oh, the Reverend examples?" Tim Vasby Burney. Oh, really? Uh, he says, "What are our earliest examples of people writing historical fiction?" In contrast to say writing down myths or embellishing the stories of saints. So you must know the answer to this, Tom. Well, I, if, if we're talking about historical novels, yeah. Um, I mean, historical fiction. Then, then it comes slightly. You know, our medieval romances. Um, you know, it's yes, they're not fiction. The same way, I mean, they? they're not yeah. fiction, are they? I, so, I, I, I think. Um, well, I think the the first novel in in kind of the modern West is Cervantes' Don Quixote, and um, the thing about Don Quixote is that he's driven mad by reading what we would call medieval romance, and the the, the humor in Cervantes is that Don Quixote is a man out of time. So we have a portrait of 16th century Spain, which, of course, for Cervantes is contemporary Spain. Yeah. And yet you have this man in armour going around um, seeing giants instead of windmills and so on. So I guess the, the Don Quixote is a novel 
about the tension between the past and the present, you could argue. That That's nice. The dynamic, yes, nice. Of yeah. it, the dynamic of it is generated by the fact that Don Quixote has a sense of reality that is rooted in the historical past rather than in the kind of the, re- the dusty reality of Philip II's Spain. So, and it's, got, it's a novel with a sense of two things, I guess. One, a sense of historical process, so a sense of historical change, that thing that you're talking about. But it's also very, um, you know, postmodern as a book because halfway through the second volume comes out in a world in which Don Quixote has already come out. So yeah. Don Quixote is then, you know, people know about him yeah. in the story. And they're like, oh, you're the fellow from the book, Don Quixote. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's like sort of Martin Amos cropping up in, you know, in Martin Amos' I, own books. Savant, I mean, so Don Quixote is such an amazing novel because it's, it, it seems to contain almost the entire future of, of fiction yes. within it. Yeah. And what's it in, in the Spanish tradition of historical fiction, it, it, it opens up a kind of much more, I think, um, playful relationship to reality than we have because we're the heirs of walter scott so in the in the anglophone tradition we're absolutely nailed to the sense we've got to get the facts right um but in in uh, in 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 spain i think of uh, actually mexican novelist carlos fuentes he wrote he writes this extraordinary novel terra nostra which is Mm. a a a counterfactual novel in which philip ii has married um elizabeth tudor um and the new world is discovered in his reign and Don Quixote is a character within that novel. And it, it's clear that, um, in a sense, he's the kind of destabilising figure, which, and his understanding of reality as being something different to what it is, is what has opened up the kind of fissure that has enabled this different sense of history to, to, to be played with. And you get it in, in Borges as well, who, who, who's kind yeah. of, in his short stories, is brilliant at riffing on history and, and giving kind of strange angles, elliptical perspectives on it. Um, but right. actually, the mention of um, counterfactual... You're going to bring in Jim Longhurst, to, aren't you? Jim Longhurst is Jim waiting Longhurst. off stage. Yes, he, he, he is. Um, and his question, what are your thoughts on alternate history novels? In my opinion, the best in the genre recognise how absurd the whole idea is and integrate that critique in the text. So you could absolutely say that about um, Terra Nostra, Carlos Fuentes's novel. Um, E.g. The, the Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is a brilliant novel, or The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick, which was a yeah. series very recently, I think, on HBO or something. Uh, so, Dominic, what's your take on uh, counterfactual so, history? So, um, oh, I think it's fine in, in novels. I mean, in a sense... All fiction is counterfactual by definition, right? Just like all yeah. fiction is historical by definition. All fiction is set in a given moment, and all fiction um, explores something that hasn't happened. So I don't have any problem with that. And of course, we all have a fascination with the what if question. Even the, the driest, most desiccated historian can never really resist it. <laughs> um, and I think, um, obviously, the. Well, a good example is um, everyone ex- would expect me to say Robert Harris, and I guess you know Fatherland is a fantastic book. I can well remember being on a bus reading the the last chapter, and you know wanting to finish it before I got to my stop. But it also won't surprise you, Tom, to know that I have a very big soft spot for Kingsley Amos's The Alteration, which is <laughs> um, uh, so. Have you read that Kingsley Amos's The Alteration? Is that the one about Elizabeth about England not going um, England Protestant? England, not the Armada land, the Armada wins. Yeah, so it's the story of a boy called Hubert Anvil who's about to become a eunuch. He's about to be, be castrated so that he can um, preserve his beautiful singing voice. And America is this sort of, you know, uh, it's this sort of New England uh, Protestant republic that people flee to. So it's a it's a book very much of its time. I think 1976. So it's a book about, obviously, all Kingsley Amis' strange hang-ups, but it's also a book about... Um, uh, the Reformation and what would have happened if things had been different. But it's also a book in which Catholic England is standing in for the Soviet Union and for the Eastern Bloc, and people are fleeing over the... There's this Cold War with yeah. the Protestant world yeah. with, led by America. So it's just... A, yeah. And it's just an immensely entertaining book in all kinds of ways. And I remember the opening of that, and there's a description of Elizabeth's black teeth. She gets shot and her wig has fallen off and her, her kind of, you know, her teeth are all black and everything as she dies from the, the bullet as the Spanish capture Hampton Court or whatever. Um, I mean, so, I also, I, I would nominate Fatherland. I, I remember Robert Harris wrote a, um, a, a kind of um, a pitch for it in the Sunday Times before it came out and I read it and I was so desperate to read it and it didn't disappoint. Um, and the, the bit I was remembering that is the Beatles are in it, which really brought home 
how are close. They, what are they doing? I can't remember that bit. Yeah, the, the Beatles are just, um, the, you know, they're four lovable mop tops from Liverpool, and the, the yeah. Nazis are slightly suspicious about them, but let them let them play. Um, do they still go to Hamburg. Presumably, they do. Easier I journey, remember. I imagine. I can't remember. A, I think I think they just right? kind of mentioned, but I guess it's kind of anchoring you in the fact that actually the sixties might have been completely different, and that really yeah. provided a jolt. Um, I mean, in, in, as a kind of serious one, uh, it's mentioned by Jim Longhurst, "The Years of Rice and Salt" by Kim Stanley Robinson, who is mainly a science fiction writer, very uh, concerned with environmental issues, um, global warming, and. Um, habitat loss and all that kind of thing. And Years of Rice and Salt is um, uh, the Black Death wipes out all the Europeans. Um, and so Europe then gets colonised by um, Muslims who have not been wiped out. Um, and it then slowly traces the course of what happens. Uh, oh, that's in, interesting. In that's yeah, in, it's really interesting. And the, thing, and the thing that's interesting about it is, unlike most counterfactuals, which are all about kind of Hitler and great men and you know yeah. battles get lost or whatever this is this is a kind of much more um uh long durée kind of perspective and it's and that's why it's it's rice and salt it's about it's 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 very very good anyway listen should we have another question yes pat roberts a good friend of the show but also um uh, kind of picking up on um some of the stuff we talked about. Do high-status novels set around the time of the author's birth count as historical? Middle March, Vanity Fair, most of Hardy, some of Dickens, and of course we could include uh, War and Peace. And I think the answer to that is absolutely, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. So I mean, Vanity Fair is a, is, a, is a great historical novel. Middle March is Vanity, Vanity Fair is a yeah. historical novel. I think of Stondahl's uh, The Charter House of Palmer. Um, uh, they don't have to be around the time of the author's birth. So another uh, question, you know, Rebecca Hutchinson asked about Emile Zola. The, another French writer. And Zola's another 19th century writer who's writing about um, events about 20 or 30 years previous. So he was writing about the Franco-Prussian War, for example, and La Débâcle. Um, and I think they are all historical novels. And actually, I think often those are the historical novels that were best. So The Tale of Two Cities is an example. It's only 50 years or so between the events before the... So the writer can slip quite easily into the idiom of the day before yesterday. Yeah. And yeah. they don't need to sort of affect this sort of bizarre, archaic conversational yeah. style. And nor do they oppress you with the minutiae of detail to show that they've done their research. So they just quite yeah. easily, you know, look slightly backwards. And the same is true of Scott's Waverley, which I guess is is classically the first historical novel um, set in the kind of background of the Jacobites and yeah. Bavarians. And, and, and that's very much kind of... It's it's removed from the time that Scott is writing about it, but it's kind of within basically living memory. So yeah, people do that now, don't they? I mean, people write books: Jonathan Coe, The Rotters Club, Philip Hensher, The Norman, The Northern Clemency. People are writing yeah. books set in the seventies and eighties, and yeah. they're historical yeah. novels. Well, um, Scott was was very much conservative. Um, yes, and and, so, and you, Dominic, as a, as a leading left wing historian, yeah, here's a question for you, and it's from William. Richard. I wrestle with this. Is, I wrestle with all these. Is, is historical fiction typically conservative? Scott Dickens talking. I don't think Dickens is conservative. I mean, Dickens is I, ambiguous, I, isn't he? Dickens is he's, very ambiguous. He's right? very much. He's you know we talked about this before. He's very much in favour of um, philanthropists turning up and scattering gold, but his 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 moral sense of moral anger at poverty and so on, I don't think is is really conservative. But anyway, Scott and Tolkien, uh, they're definitely conservative. Change yeah. being estranging and chaotic and continuity a guarantor of freedom and hope. Yeah, and that's also the uh, the ethos of The Leopard, the book I mentioned earlier, the Lamp- uh, Tomasi de Lampedusa book. Um, Tolstoy, again, an ambiguous figure, I guess, both conservative but is, and I, I guess the question is, is, is the process of looking back to the past rather than writing about the present, is that not in, in itself inherently... A conservative thing to do. Kind of yes, it, question. it probably is in some ways, isn't it? I don't think people tend to look back in the past. To the past, very rarely do people look back to the past and write books that are shot through with horror about the period they're writing about. They tend to write out of love, don't they? Do you think? Well, an interesting one, and you might say that this was the very first historical novel. Would be um, Defoe's Record of the Plague Year. Okay, is, you know, I mean, he's writing that when a kind of. 70 years after yeah. the Great Plague of London. But he writes it so convincingly that everyone now treats it as a, you know, an actual record of what went on. Um, so, but, it's not, but it's not... Is it a conservative book? I, I mean, I don't think you... I wouldn't... I don't know enough no, about but he's it. Writing, so. it, 
it's 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 a novel that that is about horror, I guess. Yeah. Um, Tale of Two Cities, anyway. which you mentioned, is clearly a conservative book, isn't it? Yeah, very. I think. Um, yeah. Thus exploding your claim that Dickens was not a conservative writer. Well, um, as we said, he, it's ambivalent because because his portrayal of um, the, the brutality of yeah, the you're right. regime yeah, it's is absolutely brilliant. I mean, the count of um, the uh, the Monseigneur with his chocolate who rides out in his carriage and they knock over the small boy. That's right. And the, yeah. the, the far, bereaved father who pursues him and kills him in the chateau is... You know, I mean, you wouldn't say that's necessarily no, you're right. a conservative you're right. writing. I mean, there's kind, of, yeah, there's kind of tension there. Anyway, I, I, so I think that's a kind of a reserved yes to that answer, isn't it? I think. Um, what else should we do? Um, we've done Rebecca Hutchinson. Oh, here's a good one. Done, Tom. Uh, Love, Reynolds and Graves for the first person approach and War and Peace for tackling the whole question of who's writing history or is history writing itself. That's from Tobin Ober. Okay, so the question of first person... Yeah. narratives over kind of third-person omniscient narrator. Um, which Do you have an opinion on which works better? Um, so Tobin Orber mentions Mary Renault, who we haven't mentioned at all. It's Mary Renault, Dominic. Yeah, um, Mary Renault. Shocking. It's, shocking. It really is Mary Renault. I wish of I'd, all, I'd, the, I'd people, of about all the people to affect a French pronunciation, I would be the last that anyone would um, expect. Anyway, so that book's The Persian Boy. And the middle one in the Alexander trilogy, and the best one, I think. Uh, and it's narrated by the eunuch Bagoas, who yes. Alexander With picks up. The most hideous description of a castration, which um, still makes me want to cross my legs just and, thinking and, about it. And I think it works actually pretty well. I mean, it, it sounds like a ridiculous idea for a novel. You know, you're, I'm going to basically have a Persian eunuch narrate the conquests of Alexander the Great in this, again, in a novel which is an inherently kind of 18th, 19th century literary form. But I think it can work if there's a integrity to the narrative voice, I guess. Absolutely. And I think with, with Mary Reynolds in particular, I think the integrity comes from the kind of the strangeness of the fact that um, she is a woman in a relationship with another woman, ventriloquizing a, a man, or in the case of Bagoas, a a boy, a boy, who yeah. in turn are then sleeping with men. So there's a kind of ripple effect of of um, disorientation happening there. And actually, um, Reynolds' books are kind of authentically true to the spirit of ancient Greece in their kind of by our standards incredible chauvinism. And I remember in um, Far from Heaven, which is the first in that series about Alexander's um, childhood and, and youth. There's a kind of amazing description where uh, Reynolds ventriloquizing Alexander says, I'd hate to, to be a woman. They kind of, you know, they, they twitter like birds <laughs> and they, they, can, they, they just have to live in cages and they cannot be like, like men, like we are. We go out and do things. And, and then you think, well, you know, it's, it's a woman writing this. Um, and yeah. it kind of sets up, it, 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 it distances you, I think, from the present. And it, it, that, I think, is part of the power of those novels that it unsettles our understanding of fairly fundamental notions like sex, like gender, in a way that may not be necessarily true to how Greeks in the 4th century actually thought. But it, by destabilising our understanding of them, it, it kind of does take you into a different sphere, which I yeah. think is what historical fiction should do. And I wonder, you know, going back to Flashman, I wonder whether one of the issues at the moment in writing historical fiction is that there are too many taboos that that yeah. moral the moral sense of what is acceptable is changing so fast that actually it 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 almost becomes dangerous to go back and and um essentially articulate mainstream views in earlier periods because they would just seem unacceptable to to so many readers now i mean i don't yeah, know i think, don't know I think i'm that. sure that's true because one of my favorites um books set in the past i suppose would be well a couple of them cormac mccarthy's blood meridian oh um, yes you know that, that is a oh that's a, that is so such good. a powerful book. But again, a book that if it was published today would probably get a different reaction from when it was published in I think the mid eighties. Right, and so we should just so looking back to haven't read. Yeah, it's that. looking back to um, so it's set on the borderlands between Mexico and the United States um, in about eighteen fifty, and it's about it follows a boy who is part of a gang of scalp hunters. So they're literally just going around killing people, effectively raping and pillaging. Um, but it's told in this incredibly bleak, dark, bloody way. 
Um, kind almost, of like Milton and King James yeah, Bible, isn't it? Just it's utterly overwhelming. Very heightened. And it's, and it's got this, as you say, it's got this kind of epic um, moralism kind of hanging over it. Um, so you, the sense that what's happening is, 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 appears to be quite small scale, but actually it's got this apocalyptic... It feels like yeah. the end of the world, doesn't it? It's like yeah, and I think same you know, style and, and, that he uses in the road. Yeah, and 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 I think that that's an example of how um, realism is banished because there's this terrifying figure, the judge, who's that's this right. kind of hairless albino, <laughs> who <laughs> paedophile, the most who, who frightening who, character in yes, fiction, isn't and it? I think he's. Basically, at the at the end, it's kind of implied that he's the devil, and I don't think that I'm giving away any spoilers. No, no. That he's immortal; that he's a kind of immortal representative of of the impulse to destroy and kill and rape and and murder. Um, yeah. So, but I know I think that I think that would still. I I mean, I don't think anyone would would think to censor Cormac McCarthy. Um, I suppose because I think his greatness be... is too evident. Maybe, maybe. Um, or what about say Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner? So that's a very difficult book. It's looking back to the. I mean, it's sort of difficult to read because it's Faulkner has a very dense sort of style, but also it's looking back to the Civil War, the American Civil War, and the, and the stain of slavery in the American South. So there's a lot of kind of very charged stuff about race in there that I think readers, a lot of modern readers, would find very unsettling. I mean, the language is obviously, you know, language that people wouldn't use now, for example. Yeah. So, Tom, let's wrap up with, I mean, there's so many tweets and I'm sorry we haven't been able to get through more than a fraction of them, but we'll end with John Sargent's tweet. He says, if only one book on history, which was fiction, survived the coming apocalypse, uh, the zombies, the lizard um, Illuminati overlords launching Armageddon, what book would that be to restart history as something humans do? So one historical novel that would survive tom what would you choose i think i would choose probably walter scott's waverley on the assumption that that really is the kind of the fountainhead of historical fiction i think i don't think it's the most gripping i don't i don't think it's the the most enjoyable i think it's perhaps the most influential um i think without that novel historical fiction as we have it now wouldn't be quite the same um, well, I'm tempted to say Flashman because it's the funniest, but I mean, the idea of the hu- future human civilization being based on Flashman is probably <laughs> even my, my disturbing thought. Yeah, very disturbing thought. So maybe I should pick, maybe um, for sentimental reasons, I'll pick the first historical novel that I remember reading, which is, um, what is it, a historical novel? I suppose it is. It's Antonia Fraser's um, book about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Have you ever read that? She no. read, wrote that when she was in her 20s. I mentioned it once in an article in the Daily Mail. I got an email from Antonia Fraser, which I was very excited by. Um, and she said, I can't believe you, you, you remember this book. I wrote it when I was in, the tw- in my 20s. I would come home at night and I, would, I had this commission to write this book and I would bang out you know, 500 words on Sir Lancelot or something before I went out partying. Um, and I've still got my copy, my copy, which is also the first book I ever wrote my name in. So there's this illegible scrawl in Antonia Fraser's King Arthur, which is the first ever recorded instance of the words Dominic Sambrook. So one day, Tom, that book will be worth <laughs> but colossal okay, amount I, of money. OK, but so people are recovering from the, the mutation zombies and <laughs> they think, well, to do history, you've got to have people handing out swords from lakes. And Yes, yeah, love it. That's what, yeah, right, well, Why enough. not? <laughs> What are you going to choose? Hard times. <laughs> I've just chosen. I've just chosen Waverley. That's hardcore yeah, realist history. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's all we've got time for. Uh, I, I think uh, let's move on. Dominic, are you going to do the? Uh, are you going to do the graces and finish us off? So um, it's a far, far better thing than I do than I've ever done. It's a far, far better rest, or in my case, dinner that I go to than I have ever known. Goodbye from me, and it's bye from me. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. 
I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.